Hello, this is Amy Blair. And this is Paul Galliardi. And this is a very special Christmas episode of The Annotated 80s. This is not a Christmas episode, Amy. Sure, it is a Christmas episode. We are recording on Christmas Eve. But that doesn't make it a Christmas episode. I have I have jingle bells. Does that make it a Christmas episode? N- no, that doesn't no. make it a Christmas episode. <laughs> but we're talking about a Christmas movie. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask, what Christmas movie are we talking about? We are talking about the classic Christmas movie Die Hard. That's not a Christmas movie. Oh, but that... all the cool kids on the internet say it's a Christmas uh, movie. Cool kids. Yes, all of the cool ones. They're all talking about it. <laughs> they are not. Um, all right, so I have some thoughts about all of this. Uh, but first, okay. I thought we could get into what exactly we're doing here on the annotated 80s. Yes. What are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? It's um, <laughs> a philosophical question. Philosophical for question. Yes. Well, um, basically, uh, we both, Paul and I both, grew up consuming a lot of popular media back in the 1980s, um, as we Gen Xers all did. Um, but as uh, kids and young teens, we didn't necessarily totally get all the messages and references in the things we were watching. We just sort of enjoyed them, pure pleasure, right? Right. And so what we're going to be doing is kind of digging into some of the things we missed the first time around, uh, movies and TV shows, um, <clears throat> while retaining the reactions we initially had the first time around, kind of like being a kid at the grown-up table your older cousin translates the conversation for you absolutely so we are going to reflect the joy we're going to reflect the joy but we're going to mediate it a little bit more through the things we know now or at least the things that we're able to research now (laughs) as people with computers yes yes okay so this is our second episode and as i said before we are turning our attention to the holiday classic 1988 die hard so paul tell me your thoughts you're shaking your head you're looking bemused tell me all of your (laughs) thoughts about this christmas movie situation we've gotten ourselves into so i guess we could start kind of at the the beginning Mm -hmm. of, of where this comes from because I should say it's a little hard to place where this argument of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie comes from. Okay. In my diligent research for the annotated 80s, <laughs> uh, what I've been able to find is most people place it sort of the birth of it, quote unquote. In mm-hmm. 2007, there was a Slate article. Um, oh, everything comes out of Slate. Man. It does. Okay. Uh, a 10, I believe it was 10 underappreciated or under the radar Christmas movies. Ooh, a listicle. A Not list- just an article, a listicle. Yes. Very yes. nice. Very nice. And in this listicle, uh, the, I reread it this morning. There's okay. a caveat of these might not be considered Christmas movies. Well, and, journalistic uh, integrity. Very good from yeah. Slate. Uh, and they had 10 different authors say, mm-hmm. give a little blurb. And the first one was Die Hard. And, and it was, I think, tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. from the author. It was a little hard, hard ascertain tone. Okay. Uh, and so, but what happened was that kind of viral spread, right? So mm-hmm. all of a sudden you started seeing these arguments in mm-hmm. listservs and other uh, forms of digital communication. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And then it kind of died for a while. Hard. <laughs> walked right into that didn't i, I left you. <laughs> teed it right up for me thanks Ooh, yeah. that was right over the plate um it kind of when social media kind of took off in 2008 2009 you start to see a spike in this conversation again you start to uh, see memes of die hard is a christmas movie die hard is not a christmas movie uh if you google die hard christmas movie and you do an image search you see thousands of these i consider die hard to be a christmas movie uh it's all about the clicks right yeah about the clicks right so that's kind of where we are and i i i I, let me say this i don't really have a horse in this race okay well i did do a little research i have to say um Mm -hmm. because uh that is the thing that i do and what we do and um it definitely is not what they were thinking in 1988 right 20th century fox was not thinking this the film premiered on july 12th 
1988. And that is not Christmas, Paul. I, okay. I also have done <laughs> research. Uh-huh. A miracle, miracle on 34th Street was released, I think, in the summer of 19, <gasps> 1945. No, you're yes. kidding me. Yeah. But it was, it was not set in Christmas time either. And, you know, White Christmas was released in October 1954. That's so. still the season, though, right? I mean, yeah. or the, does that even, is that even a thing then? You're, you're my film historian. So is that even I, I holiday think season film yeah. release? My guess is that they would have done it to get a longer just box office release i would right. i would say right and that might have been like the initial release because i know a lot of musicals in the 50s they would release they do the thing like they do in hollywood right now where your prestige p- picture you release one day in los angeles so you can get into right. that academy awards cycle i yeah. know they would release those musicals in certain cities early and then mm-hmm. send them out to the general public later. So it might have been that case of White Christmas, but we're getting off off topic here. Well, we're, yeah. We're... So in 1988, though, uh, the pattern definitely already is that your big action films are going to be released in the summer, right? That's a summer box office situation. And even though you know we've got a situation where we've got John McClane on a plane at the beginning of the film going home or going to LA rather for Christmas, which is not his home. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make it a Christmas film. Although you found something interesting, didn't you? One last thing about this Christmas film thing. You found something interesting when you were looking up the memes, right? With uh, videos. Oh, there was a video from 20th Century Fox. Oh yeah. And, and 20th Century Fox, I think this year released a <laughs> faux Christmas movie, uh, a, a trailer of Die uh-huh. Hard recast as a Christmas movie, um, which was interesting. And then of course, like Bruce Willis has come out and said like, this is not a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think the producer of Die Hard is now claiming it's a Christmas movie. Uh, so all for that sweet sweet uh uh uh, residuals right all the sure making it making it uh people watch it on hbo right right? as they're sitting around in the pandemic which i think is a really kind of interesting point is to what we consider to be a christmas movie sometimes is just by happenstance or availability Mm -hmm. Um, right you know uh, it's a wonderful life is a forgotten movie in the 1940s Mm-hmm. Uh, when TV is looking for cheap films to show at Christmas time, I think the story was they they accidentally left "It's a Wonderful Life" in the public domain, and Oops. so <laughs> and so that's how it got like cycled into being this this holiday classic or a Christmas story. Turner Ted Turner had bought mm-hmm. the MGM catalog prior to 1983, and was like would show it continually on tbs and tnt and that becomes a holiday movie in that way so it's not and so weirdly i think there's a kind of yeah like going through that residuals Mm -hmm. of producers advocating for it Mm -hmm. um because it's also a cheap i guess not necessarily cheap but it's something you can cycle through on a cable network right yeah Yeah. absolutely and i think all of now the, the middle one is not set at Christmas time. The one in New York, the third Die Hard, but the Die Hard Two is set at Christmas. Oh, Die Hard Two is very determinedly set at Christmas. Also released in the middle of summer. However, um, we'll do a right. quick plot summary. Really, the plot is all about the setup. Because um, after you get to a certain point, um, I was <laughs> saying to Paul that the plot of this movie is kind of like the scaffolding that you see throughout the upper floors of uh, Nakatomi Plaza. It's just a very, very thin skeleton (laughs) on which we hang all of the opportunities for action and violence. So really it's all about the setup, uh, which is that John McClane is on a plane at the beginning of the film. He is coming to LA from New York where he is a New York police officer. And he is coming to see his wife and family who are living in Los Angeles now because of her job. She has moved to Los Angeles, left him behind uh, because she is the director of corporate affairs now um, at Nakatomi Corporation. And uh, he's on his plane and he doesn't like air travel, obviously. The guy next to him inexplicably tells him that the way to get over, I guess, 
residual air sickness, I don't know, is when he gets to the place where he's coming from, uh, he needs to take off his shoes and wiggle his toes around in the carpet, right? Which is an important point, important plot point. Uh, McLean gets out. He is met at the airport by a limousine driver uh, who, whose name is Argyle, as it turns out. Um, he and Argyle are talking about uh, he didn't think, or Ar Argyle draws it out of him, rather. Um, this is, uh, Argyle is very new at his job. Um, John McLean doesn't really know if his wife, Holly, is going to take him back. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to stay with her. So Argyle says, you know what? I'm just going to wait here and see how that goes down. If you need a ride to your next stop because she has rejected you, I'm just going to wait in the garage. Um, and you just give me a buzz here on my bag phone. Speaking of bag phones, I'd like to say that was really the aesthetic we were going for in the first episode, technology-wise. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Bag phones. <laughs> yeah, if you felt it was a little wonky, that was all really intentional. We thought, actually, about recording this episode um, from bag phones um, in the yeah. basement. Um, Brian, our long-suffering producer, uh, uh, nixed that idea. He thought that would be... You know, he's not about the cinema verite at all. But anyway, anyway, yeah. so we've got we've got Argyle in the basement. Um, John goes in, notices his wife has been using her maiden name uh, as her professional name. He gets really incensed. Uh, he goes up to and as incensed as he gets at this point in the film, which is basically a sort of wry. Well, what the? F I just got us an explicit rating. Sorry. <laughs> what the? What the heck? Um, darn it darn it all right so he goes up to the 30th floor which is where the christmas eve christmas party is taking place which which is that's just that's a terrible idea yeah but, why well clearly these people don't care about their families which is the no. point right no so uh, it's christmas eve they're having their christmas party uh mclean goes up there he has a little encounter with holly um turns out that holly actually has a dude who's after her um ellis uh, at the job and um, there's chatting, chatting, chatting when suddenly Alan Rickman shows up. Yes. Uh, yes. Coming in <laughs> to Nakatomi Plaza uh, with a car and everything else. And they just descend over the whole building. They go up to the 30th floor. They've got a tech guy who's starting to work on getting into the vaults. Um, Alan Rickman goes up and is fabulous and does Rickman-y things and with his voice and the look and everything. And they take everybody as hostage. Um, they take Mr. Takagi, who is the CEO, or at least the guy in charge locally. Um, and they say, you know, we want to get in your vault. <laughs> Takagi says... <laughs> Brian is just gonna. This Brian. is yeah. Let's just you know, let's just start cursing left and right here because there's, there's no there's there's no going back. Brian is now getting into the spirit. He's put on his Santa costume. Yeah, yeah. So this is a Christmas episode. Mm -hmm. um Anyway, who who does this? Who records a podcast on Christmas Eve, man? I These people we, clearly think... don't care about their family. No, no. I think we know. <laughs> I think we know. <laughs> I'm actually recording from inside uh, the tower in Die Hard. So, <laughs> in, the, in the air ducts. Yeah, so. in the, in the air <laughs> yeah. So this is yeah, this is pretty great. Um, Alan Rickman. Okay, so Alan Rickman, who is fabulous, um, shoots Mr. Takagi in the head. This is our first indication that these people mean business, or as they constantly say, these are professionals. Right. And that's one right. of that's one of Paul's favorite lines. It, right. Yes, that they're yes. they're professionals. They they've um, gone through, you know, you know, bank robber university. They have their credentials. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And there's some question about whether these guys are just are terrorists, right? Whether they have a political um bone to pick or whether they're just criminals. Mm -hmm. and Mr. Takagi finds out quickly that they're just criminals. Um, but it takes everybody else in the film a little while. Um, so with Takagi gone, um, oh, what has happened? Where, where is John McClane and all of this? Um, he has actually been in the bathroom of the executive suite. He has taken off his shoes and he is digging his toes into the carpet when he hears all of the gunfire. 
and he immediately goes into action. Um, as a cop, he uh, decides that he's going to hide out and try to figure out what the heck is going on here. Um, and this begins a sort of game of cat and mouse throughout the upper floors of Nakatomi Plaza, many of which are unfinished, uh, where John McClane is um, kind of hunting the terrorists, um, desperately trying to get word out that something bad is going on here. The terrorists have all, or the robbers rather, have all um, cut the phone lines so nobody can call out um, of Nakatomi Plaza. Um, and there's just a whole lot of uh, climbing up and down uh, <laughs> stairwells, um, jumping into uh, elevator banks. Um, uh, he does manage to get the word out twice. Yeah, he calls. He calls once, and then like, like he goes to the, he's on that secret radio, that that special radio. Right, channel. he goes to the dispatch, and yeah. there is a um, unpleasant female police dispatcher who basically tells mm -hmm. him to go away. Mm -hmm. um, but then she does in the background hear some shots and says, "Let's send one car to Nakatomi Plaza to look around at things." And the person that she sends is Reginald Val Johnson, um, who is a, uh, he's been a desk jockey. He is picking up a whole bunch of Twinkies when he gets the call. Um, he drives over to Nakatomi Plaza, goes inside, looks around, talks to the robber who is pretending to be the desk clerk, who looks an awful lot like um, Huey Lewis. <laughs> Uh, it, was, and it was Huey Lewis. He, yeah, it looks exactly like him. Was it? It wasn't Huey Lewis. No, it was It looks it exactly like him. No, no. Anyway, uh, talks to he him. He really decides, needed new drugs, and that's what he had to. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Decides that um, he's going to give up on this, goes outside. Um, John McClane uh, throws a body down on top of him, and that's when he realizes, oh, something's going on here. He ends up calling in the entire LAPD. Um, they show up. Eventually, the LAPD ends up calling in the FBI. Um, and all sorts of explosions and fights ensue. And of course, at the end, I mean, again, this part of the plot is not that important um, because it is not so much plot. It's just a lot of action. Um, but at the end, uh, of course, uh, we have the scene where John McClane is um, pushing Hans Gruber, uh, which is the character name, Alan Rickman's character's name, um, off the top of the building. Uh, Gruber has gotten a hold of the Rolex watch that Holly has gotten uh, for her service to the company. Uh, McLean unfastens the watch, which is the thing that allows Hans to then fall floors and floors to his death. Um, everybody goes downstairs. Um, one of the last kind of robo, um, kind of a, a robo robber um, sort of comes back up suddenly alive when we all thought he was dead. Um, Reginald Val Johnson's character shoots him, kills him. Um, Holly and John are reunited in love, but the real, the real passionate reunited scene seems to be between John and um, Al, the the cop who has been helping him this whole time. Right. Yeah. That's that's when the, the the violence soar when they see each other. Right. Yeah. It's a feel so, good move. It's a feel good moment. Yes. Movie, exactly. Right? Oh, and Argyle ends up emerging. Argyle's been sitting in the basement the entire time, but he ends up emerging at the end too, um, to much comedic effect. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's my plot summary. Uh, but anyway, uh, it is a little like the book. Believe it or not, mm. there was actually a book written. This was there. based on a book. Mm -hmm. And Paul, bless his heart actually read the book so are you saying bless my heart like in the kind of passive aggressive southern way that, you know <laughs> no 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 this is not the southern bless your heart this okay. is the this mm. is the i've been living in the midwest now for 17 years okay okay paul has suffered for <laughs> oh, the Lord. podcast and he has read <sighs> this book i read this book uh so let me okay in the interest of fairness this book is not long i finished it in one day uh, which is not un unusual for me because I'm a pretty fast reader, but it's, it's, it was written by a guy named Roderick Thorpe who's kind of forgotten in literary circles. Um, he was a newspaper reporter for a time, then transitioned. His big book was called The Detective. Um, and this technically, the, the novel that Die Hard is based off of is called Nothing Lasts Forever from 1979. It is a sequel to The Detective, which I will talk about the end here. Teaser. Uh, 
where to start? So basically, Die Hard is nothing lasts forever. You have a cop who comes to this tower. There are terrorists. He saves the day. There are some significant differences. One is that unlike Die Hard, we get these really great scenes with Alan Rickman uh, and some of the, the secondary characters. There's none of that. And nothing lasts forever. Uh, it's all told from John, John, it's not John, Mc, John McClane, it's John Lehane, I believe. All told from his point of view. So everything that we see is from that one character. Uh, he is a retired cop. So he is in his, I think he's coded in his, his 60s. He is a World Honestly, War II veteran. He will not uh, be jumping into any air ducts. He oh he does oh, he, he still does. does all the things that John McClane does in Die Hard. Oh, that's impressive. Um, so he's been he's been working out. There are a yeah. lot of <laughs> there are a lot of plot points that aren't in the book. There's this mm-hmm. whole subplot of uh, John McClane's character in the novel falling in love with the stewardess on on the flight. Wow. He's coming to visit his daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, his daughter is working for it's not called the, what's the name of the, com- the company in Die Hard? Nakatomi. Uh, Nakatomi. It's not Nakatomi. Uh, it's a company that's working in building bridges in Chile. Um, wow. And everyone is kind of in, com- complicit in some dirty dealings the company is doing, including McLean's, not McLean's, but John's daughter. Okay. Um, his wife has died years ago um they had separated so there's not the resolution that you see there's and there's some side stories where uh john's character is sort of being live i won't say live blogged but he's being recorded by like his phone calls or his cv cv his cb his Uh radio transmissions are being picked up by cbers in los angeles and they're being replayed on live television um there's a shootout, a lot of shoots out, shootouts. They actually are terrorists. So the Hans character, they are not like bank robbers. They're ideological mm-hmm. breakaway, like fascist or anti-fascists in, in Germany, West Germany. Huh. Okay. Um, and then the end, there's the, the climactic scene on the rooftop, but it's, it's Hans Gruber's character. Uh, I think he's Hans Zimmer or something in, in, in the book. Um, and, and McLean's daughter, or John's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and they both fall to their deaths. Uh, and so the daughter he, dies too. The daughter dies too. Oh, that's harsh. Um, and yeah. Well, and she then, has to because she's complicit, right? Yeah. Oh, she's totally complicit. And so there's a lot yeah. of internal dialogue of John's character kind of railing against the system and bureaucracy. And uh, but not, I would not recommend this. My Goodreads be like a 2.5. <laughs> uh, well, that's a really, in, it's a really interesting though, because it, it sort of highlights the difference. And I, I'm actually going to skip to this, the question of the, the um, who are the bad guys, right? Um, mm-hmm. And sort of what is their, what, what do they want in the movie, right? Right. Um, so we've got, in, in, in your case, there's like this multinational corporation that's doing dirty dealings, right? Um, right. In Chile. Well, mm-hmm. in this case, right, Nakatomi seems fine, right? There, there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of real issue with what Nakatomi does. Um, we don't really, we don't really know that much. I mean, I guess they, they are building a bridge, right? We see a little model of a bridge that they're building, but there's no right. sense that they're, you know, being sketchy at all. I mean, Hans Gruber is really just after money, right? And he, he tells Mr. Right? Yeah, Bar- Barabas. Yeah. He tells Mr. Takagi, like this, this is a very small amount of your daily working capital. Like this mm-hmm. is going to be nothing to you if we steal this, right? So just right. give it to us. Um, there are many jokes that are made throughout the film where um, these are the, some of the famous lines in the movie, right? Where he says, uh, he's asking for people to be released political prisoners throughout the world and they say he's yes. like the shining dawn somebody says who's that he says i don't know i read about them in time magazine right so it, it's if you've never seen die hard please go watch just for alan rickman alone like it's like it's Alan rickman's first t- film role it is his first film and my my hot take is that it is a, an alan rickman film right I, and, I and we watched die hard 2 um which is dreadful and mm-hmm. what it lacks is Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman just elevates this the whole thing anyway. And, yes. and yeah, so this is definitely an Alan Rickman film. Um, but, you know, Gruber is German, right? He's coded German and um, all of his 
almost all of his uh, uh, fellow um, thieves are coded German, except one who is definitely, who is coded Asian, um, mm -hmm. but who gets shot very easily by John. Like he, he actually dies the easiest, right, of all of oh, them. Oh, yeah, he's the guy that he goes for a snack or something, and then... Well, he goes for a snack, but then he's also, he's like heading into a stairwell and John is heading oh, out and John just right, like, right, 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 right. and he's done, right? right? There's right. no, there's no hand-to-hand -hand fighting or anything. He's very easy to kill. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a whole speech where Hans Gruber is sort of listing Mr. Takagi's um, uh, CV, right? Um, mm -hmm. And Takagi actually was, um, his family immigrated to the U.S. before World War II and then was actually in internment camps in World War II. He gets out of the internment camps and starts making his way through all of the top American educational institutions, right? He goes to Stanford, he goes to Yale. Um, he's this, you know, CEO of this company or at least the, the American uh, head, of, head, of, head of Nakatomi in America. Um, he has five children, right? Which is, mm -hmm. you know, very American, um, huge, huge family. Um, for Japanese family. So, you know, he's basically totally assimilated and is also a product of uh, the World War II uh, American Japanese, um, anti-Japanese violence. Um, Germany and Japan are of course two of the Axis powers in World War II, um, but they're very different types of threats to the US in the eighties. Um, and the Japanese are a huge financial threat, right? They have right. increased efficiency of production um, technological superiority to U.S. manufacturing is basically, at this point, completely killing the U.S. car industry, right? There's uh, competition from cheaper, more fuel-efficient Japanese cars. Um, people in the early 80s began protesting by, in late 70s and early 80s, um, are destroying Japanese cars, right? Um, and the um, anti-Japanese, anti-Asian violence is getting pretty intense in um, 1982, a Chinese American man named Vincent Chen is murdered in Highland Park, Michigan by two laid off auto workers who um, allegedly were yelling anti-Japanese slurs as they're beating him to death, right? And so, I had never heard of this until you mentioned it. Yeah, no, whole, it was a huge, the, yeah. and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, the murder of Vincent Chen was actually a huge galvanizing um, moment for um, Asian American, for Pan-Asian American, um, uh, organizing and um, just really huge deal, right? Yeah. But but the Japanese and um, eventually we might do an episode on gung ho as well, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which yes. is kind of the lighter yes. the lighter yes. side of uh, the auto crisis. But um, so even though like the major corporation is Japanese, right? Mr. Takagi is Japanese. Um, the Japanese really actually aren't the enemies here in this film, right? right? They're there as a little bit of a touch point, but they're not the bad guys. So tell me, you had some thoughts actually about the Germans. Yes. Right? And the fact that Hans Gruber and all of his buddies are vaguely German. Yeah, so to me, this, this sort of Teuton, the Teutonic person as a villain mm -hmm. uh, is, it, it reminds me a lot of, how pro wrestling operates, right? That when, when you have, I've thought through that. Listen, I'm going to say yeah, this. Nope, I hear you. Podcast, this is... you know, Amy, you're skeptical, I know. But uh, at times when there is economic insecurity or mm -hmm. ultra nationalism in the United States, which centers in the 1980s, mm -hmm. pro wrestling is sometimes a good bellwether of, mm -hmm. of how people are viewing themselves as Americans. And so you do tend to have like the foreign heel, the foreign bad guy become a staple of, of wrestling. Now, Germans have long been the heels in pro wrestling, like before around the time of huh. World War One, or like huh. 1920s, they had like the, the uh, <clears throat> um, uh, oh shoot, like the, the uh, very elite, you know, the monocle kind of German. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. And after World War II, a lot of the German wrestlers like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Baron von Raschke and uh, the von Erichs, uh, they have like a very fascist overtone to what mm -hmm. they're wearing. They will wear like the Iron Cross and them would wear the swastika. They would goose step to huh. the ring. Wow. Uh, very subtle. And by the yes. 1960s, 
But by the 1960s, that kind of mm-hmm. starts to fade away because audiences have gotten used to that villain. And mm-hmm. then you start to see the foreign heel be Soviet or mm-hmm. Japanese. And mm-hmm. so in the 1980s, the big heels in the WWF at the mm-hmm. time uh, was a Russian guy and an Iranian. Uh, and then later you have several Japanese heels. So Interesting. So I think of like, kind of placing this like there's not his like at that time there's not Uh the same hostility toward germans Mm -hmm. because of the affinity with west germany right but but still you kind of rely on that trope of the german guy is the bad guy got it um and that that makes a lot of sense in in that way now rick may be a fantastic wrestling heel i just there's nothing he (laughs) (laughs) He would be a fantastic anything Right. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because World War II actually isn't the major conflict that is uh, cued in this. I mean, you know, it, it was in your book, right? There's mm-hmm. a right. lot about World War II. But by the time the movie is being made, the uh, major national conflict that they're talking about is Vietnam, right? There are a lot right. of mentions of Vietnam. Uh, your two favorite characters, Special Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. Um, <laughs> they're my two favorite characters. <laughs> They're everybody's favorite characters, yeah, aside right. from Alan Reitman. But yeah. um, one, the one Agent Johnson, you know, talks about when they're they're in the helicopter, right, um, heading toward the roof. Of the, he's like, yeah, this is just like I was in Nam, right? So Vietnam is definitely there in the background. Um, and one of the things I noticed as mm-hmm. I was watching this um, is that John McClane, throughout the course of the film, becomes very Rambo esque. Oh yes, but I didn't. Uh-huh. I, I noticed this without ever having watched Rambo. So you had never seen Rambo. I had prior. never watched mm-hmm. Rambo, but I grew up in the eighties, so I knew Rambo. So he was in the ether for you, but he, he, he wasn't. You know. Yes, exactly. Right. At, at which point, saying this to Paul, Paul said, <laughs> "I said you have to watch this, Amy." And. <laughs> Um, and I kept a record of Amy's reactions to Rambo. And, <laughs> and we're going to come back to Rambo at some point because that alone is like, and yeah. you watched second Rambo two, first blood, first five. blood part five, I yeah. don't even, first blood, bloodier. The, I, I did not understand the titling conventions the, of the Rambo movies. <laughs> Okay, we'll save that for the Rambo episode because yes, that's yes. a whole thing to, to break apart. So some of Amy's reactions. Uh, I'm gonna pick some of <laughs> Rambo here. I was I was uh, I was uh, live blogging my <laughs> watching of Rambo. I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the Paul. end here because you make some you make some interesting points. I want to come back to like Native American iconography and et cetera. But what the hell was that? That makes no sense. It exploded. <laughs> The water is on fire. I can't type. Oh my God, this movie. Why did he blow all this up? His headband is red now. Or maybe, I don't know. Uh, he can fly choppers now. Oh, he can reload. That, that was kind of like, a, that was kind of like a, a matrix moment. Like, you know, yeah. oh, I can fly, a, I can fly a chopper. Yeah. Which maybe actually now I realize the matrix is quoting Rambo when he uh, suddenly is able to fly a helicopter okay oh, probably maybe. not that complicated but anyway no, keep going no. where's he getting ammo um this reminds me a lot of space movies mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's it pretty pretty poignant yeah uh, how do you say this i'm, I'm gonna spell the word here because i don't want to c-h-e-o-n-g-s-a-m Chongsam. okay so you make a it's point a very about- very tight uh chinese dress right long mm-hmm. tight chinese dress it's um you know, uh, I can't think. Kiss of the Spider Woman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't walk in those things. But you're, you're, she, she the character can run in one of those, and you're, you get very angry <laughs> about. Um, wow, like I, I can't. Some of these words I don't even know. Like uh, you're cursing here. Is, is <laughs> <laughs> well, the the thing that was interesting to me is that um, watching Rambo which was inexplicable uh, to me though. It, it was very visually stunning, right? Mm-hmm. And so many of the visuals are actually reproduced in Die Hard. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the things that I really noticed, first of all, is I noticed throughout the movie, um, John McClane uh, strips, right? And he, right. he starts out in a white, um, I don't know, a wife beater, right? Mm-hmm. T-shirt. 
Um, and it starts out, it's white. Um, and he's got on his pants, he's barefoot, right? Um, gradually throughout the course of the film, by the time we get to one hour into the film, uh, the thing is like bloody, the t-shirt and it's getting darker. And then by like one hour and 20 minutes, it's completely camo colored, right? Which yeah. Paul was like, I think there's a continuity problem here. But I, I think that, you know, he's he's just getting grungier and grungier and sweatier. That was another thing I noticed about Rambo's. Everybody's extremely sweaty, right? Even the right. people who are working in the office in Rambo are extremely sweaty. Um, <laughs> That's right. I, 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 meant to, what, meant to mention that one and, yeah, I, did, yeah. and I, I feel bad. That's okay. I, I wanted to bring it up. Uh, but then, you know, also he, you know, McLean is wearing his uh, uh, gun slung across his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just keeps looking more and more like Rambo. And, and this yeah. is in 1988, right? right. Um, and, and you had some thoughts about like action stars and yeah, why and they would be making him look like Rambo as Bruce Willis. So kind of like a little bit of a deep dive here. So I think it's really important to kind of place this in the Reagan era. And we're going to come, like, since we're talking about the 80s, we'll be talking about Reagan a lot. Yes. One of the things that Reagan does is he kind of consciously promotes the sort of masculinity of his, in like one of his first major campaign appearances, he's wearing a cowboy hat. He's drawing on his experience in Hollywood and doing, I believe, doing Westerns. Mm-hmm. So he's like, he's coming out of the West to come save America, California, mm-hmm. even though California, California, right. He has that ethos. He can deliver a line. Right. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the action films in the 1980s start to take cues from that. And there's some really great, and I'll, I'll post them on, on the website, mm-hmm. uh, some really great overviews of the sort of Hollywood embrace of kind of Reagan, Reagan conservatism. Mm-hmm. You see this a lot in action movies uh, where there's a rejection of 1970s, the sort of new man of like Jimmy Carter and being mm-hmm. in touch emotionally uh, mm-hmm. with your emotions, uh, being uh, open to second wave feminism, um, you know, being open to gay liberation and civil rights. Uh, Reagan kind of says no. And so there's a reactionary movement in a lot of uh, mas- portrayals of masculinity in, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're Stallones, right? Mm-hmm. Ultra buff. And you had, and one of your comments is Stallone doesn't say anything in Rambo. He says like five <laughs> words. And that's yeah. partially by man design. Man of few words. Man of few words, but a man of action, a man of few words. Um, now, John Yes. Man of Muscles. Now, John McClane says a lot in, in Die Hard. Right? He's very, very talkative. Yes. Very, very vocal. Um, but there's a kind of reframing of everything. And there's mm-hmm. a sort of, and you think about, we can talk at some point about a Die Hard's politics here, but mm-hmm. it's kind of all over the place. But a lot of it is playing too. Like you think about, if you've seen Rambo First Blood, the bloodiest. Um, <laughs> More blood. Or blood. Um, you know that there's a kind of conflict between John Rambo as a sort of vigilante hired to go find these POWs in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He fights. He has that legacy of Vietnam as a failed war, and the, yep. the 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 you know the the government. That's why you know we lost Vietnam was because the government came in and screwed everything. They let the soldiers mm-hmm. do what soldiers need to do. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and Rambo is fighting the bureaucracy of the military, but right. also militaries. It's the, the movie makes no sense. I will admit that. It, it truly Rambo, makes no sense, yeah, but that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but everyone loved it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so it, 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 it meant something to people and it, it created this culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which is also super complicated about, you know, who are the military? Who are the bad? What is the government? Is the government the military? Is there a military versus government? I mean, we are seeing the working out of a lot of that now in 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows how explicitly we'll see it by the time we edit this podcast and right. post it on on our, on right. our site. Yeah. Deep sigh. Yeah, but deep yeah, sigh. The, I mean, the, what's interesting to me too about this is that, you know, even though they kind of make Willis look like Rambo, right? And he does all these stunts. He has all these ridiculous moments. Um, he isn't a hard body actor, right? He's not, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, At he's least not, not in this first bo- film. 
right he's not schwarzenegger he's not mm. van damme he's not stallone like you know so like you're showing off like mm. these ultra you know buff bodies right um my my one of my colleagues bridget keys i'll give a shout out to her um she kind of argues that like it, it's partly more of like he's an everyman john mm -hmm. john mcclane is and so that kind of like also aligns with the the outgrowth of the uh the fitness craze the 1980s and so mm -hmm. he's turning into a hard body at some point mm -hmm. but this movie he's he's much more schleppy compared to uh to stallone and but, yet can still belly up into an air duct and crawl along in it i mean i can too i don't know what the problem is okay, like that's yeah, common well, you know, <laughs> that's, you know right. you give me a ladder and uh <laughs> <laughs> just shimmy along yeah, and, be, and, yeah. and make and make some really good uh one-liner jokes as, oh, you're, I have as a few. you're crawling along in that i have a few yeah yeah um so we're getting close to the end of our of our time here with mm -hmm. everyone today and it is as i as we mentioned it is christmas eve so um maybe we should uh bring this around to a few last things we haven't mentioned um there are lots of things we haven't mentioned there are always going to be lots of things we haven't mentioned so actually it would be fabulous if people send us notes um we're already <laughs> contemplating a um what we missed uh episode coming up in you know after four or five of these six or seven or eight yeah. um but uh, I have a few particular um, moments that uh, we haven't mentioned. Which, so one of the things that was really fun for me as I was watching um, and was almost certainly also a, a sort of fun thing for 80s audiences was seeing character actors um, come back. Um, these We were talking about the celebrity. Um, what was the, the phrase you used? The star, the star image. Star image, right. These, this is a little different, right? Because these are just character actors. These are folks who come in as sort of smaller roles, but then you go, oh yeah, that guy. I remember that guy, right? But, I mean, then, but then a lot of these guys are kind of type typecast, right? So they're playing exactly. the same sort of general roles at certain points, but yeah. Yeah, well, and that's the fun, right? You see them again. And then you also remember when they played that role before in a different movie. And so it's already got a lot of that backstory and a lot of that sort of character build, right? Right. Um, so in Die Hard, there's the big bad, Hans Gruber, right? But then you've also got these kind of, you know, mediocre bads, <laughs> right? The little, the like minor factotum people who are just making life hell for John McClane as he's yeah. trying to do the right thing here. Damn it. There, there goes our explicit again. Um, yeah. And there too, there's the media and there's the official LA police department, right? And the media is represented by a TV reporter named Thornburg. This dude is played by the guy who played EPA official Walter Peck in Ghostbusters in 1984, right? right. Um, this is William Atherton, who's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and so many times as I'm watching this, I'm like, wait, didn't that happen to him in Ghostbusters too, right? Um, I mean, Ghostbusters That's also, right. not in yeah. Ghostbusters too. But, you know, they... Uh, he gets punched in the face at the end by Holly, um, by, by McClane's right. wife. Right. Um, same energy is when he gets massive amounts of marshmallow dumped on him <laughs> in, in the end of Ghostbusters, <laughs> right? Um, in Ghostbusters, you have that great line, uh, Bill Murray says, I'm going to send him a nice fruit basket. You know, that, is, that was always my favorite line of the kid. Uh, that's what I always used to say about people who were mean to me. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he's back. And four years later, he goes, that's the dude from Ghostbusters. Um, same thing, LA Deputy Chief of Police, Dwayne T. Robinson, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a bad guy name. That's just so generic. That's it's, it has to be. <laughs> well, it's, it's a generic kind of hapless, kind of useless um, guy who thinks he's super masculine, but he's totally not. And so he just yeah. becomes a petty tyrant, right? Um, and and that's, that's his character. It is played by Paul Gleason, who 80s audiences will never forget as Richard Vernon, the vice principal in 1985's Breakfast Club, right? So as soon as Dwayne T. Robinson jumps out of that police car, you go, oh my God, it's yeah. the Breakfast Club guy. And you remember like, this is that asshole, right? Who, you know, <laughs> says that thing to Bender, right? And he tells, so I, I love, he tells Bender, remember, um, he says, you know, someday when you're out of here, you've forgotten all about this place. I'm going to kick the living shit out of you. I'm going to knock your dick in the dirt. 
He says that to Bender, to a high school student. Yeah. And then when he's mad and die hard, he's mad at John McClane. He's like, he's like, if he does it, you know, tell, tell, tell your friend to stay out of this. Cause if he doesn't, I'm going to nail him, boy. I'm going to really nail his ass now. Believe me. And it's, it's like same, same, same energy. Yeah. Same energy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're definitely playing with that. Like, remember that this is that asshole principle. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. We mentioned the, the Walter Peck in Ghostbusters. And if we do a Ghostbusters, like my, I, I don't understand why he's the bad guy because he's actually doing his job. <laughs> Yeah, that's always bothered me about Ghost, but like, uh, uh, but he's he's right, you know. <laughs> Paul and I have a difference of opinion about Ghostbusters. Uh, which, that's that's going to be an ugly episode. I'll that's going right to be brutal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, I one thing that struck me watching this again, and we can keep coming back to this on this mm-hmm. podcast, was, I you know, given uh, okay, uh, mine's mine's going to be a little more serious. It's 2020. Go for it. Uh, we talked about copaganda and the portrayal of police as having complete moral authority and yep. And, yep. Uh, and I'm not sure where Die Hard falls into that because it kind of you do have John McClane's character he's he's got to be like the cowboy and come through and save the day um, the other police are shown as incompetent so it's kind of uh, a lot of these movies from these 80s have like like Rambo right have a very complicated view of the military or the police these these institutions that are cons- like enam- are, uh, not enamored uh, loved by conservatives mm-hmm. um, but then in the, the portrayals themselves they're not they're way more complicated mm-hmm. it's not as is like propagandistic as it might be in some in some ways but well uh, and you noticed too a thing that completely blew both of our minds that neither one of us remembered from watching this way back in the day it was the backstory for reginald bell johnson's character right that he's on desk duty because he shot a kid it's a teenager who had stun gun or like a, a toy gun which happened that was that was in the news a lot in the 1980s i remember a lot of stories around around that but no, we, we have those same cases currently. And, but like the, for me, the film kind of just completely downplays that, right? That, oh, yeah, go ahead. It's a mark of kind of the institution failing the cop. It's not, that's the implication. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a moral failing on his part for using deadly force. It's mm-hmm. the institution is screwing him over because, oh, he was just doing his job. Yeah, it was, it was an honest mistake. Right. Sure. And, and the movie seems to agree with that. Right. As opposed to, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you shouldn't be using deadly force. <laughs> right. But of course, it's a movie about deadly force. Right. And there's also the line where the one bank robber says, well, you're you're a cop. You're not going to you're going to go by the rules. And, right. you know, and, and John McClane says, no, I don't. I'm not going to do a Bruce Willis impression. I can't get my voice <laughs> that timber. I tried earlier. That's not going to happen. So, well, I think we've done some good work here, Paul. I think we have too. I think we have too. And um, we also have some suggestions for further watching and reading. For your graduate, your graduate course. Yes, if you're taking this as a graduate course. Yes. So my recommendation is The Detective. Uh, it is the film, not the, not the novel adaptation, not the novel that was the prequel to Nothing Lasts Forever. Okay. Uh, but the film version, 1968, starring Frank Sinatra, Ooh. who incidentally was offered the role of John McClane first because See? he had... Con- uh, what? Yes, he had contractual... Because he had started in this film, because this was a sequel to The Detective, they offered the role to 76-year-old or however old he was. Oh my God. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. You totally, you totally sprung that on me at the last second. I, I had no I did. idea. I did. Shocker. Wow. Third act reveal yeah <laughs> uh but watch watch the movie the movie is very much a product of its time there are a lot of really fantastic actors uh in it um uh including sinatra does a really fantastic job uh and it deals a lot with gay life in the 1960s and so in some ways it's pretty progressive for 1968 but it's you would be shocked though that that's the prequel to die hard because in essence because like the the books are completely different in many many ways um 
don't read the novel. The novel's like 600 some pages long. I, I got 50 <laughs> pages in. I'm like, I don't have time for this. So that's my recommendation. You don't care that much about the podcast. No, no. I mean, <laughs> let's be real here. I have my limits. Yes. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you know your limits. Um, oh, Robert Duvall is in it. I couldn't think of his name. But Robert, oh. it was one of Robert Duvall's first roles. But, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going on the list for sure. Well, my grad assignment is uh, to watch the 1987 documentary film, Who Killed Vincent Chen? Uh, this is a film made by Christine Choi and Renee Tajima Pena. It was um, eventually, it eventually aired on PBS as a POV feature film. And it is obviously a documentary about the murder of Vincent Chen. And it talks about the sentences that the murderers received, very, very light sentences. They each got a $3,000 fine and had to pay $780 in court costs, got three years probation. Ooh. But as I said before, this galvanized Pan-Asian American activism uh, group formed called the American Citizens for Justice. Uh, they led, the, led to the Department of Justice investigating the murder as a civil rights violation. And the documentary um, follows uh, this moment of activism, uh, which was a very important moment in Asian American uh, history. So um, in our next episode, uh, we're actually going to shift gears. Uh, we're going to go to the wonderful world of 80s television um, with the gloriously inappropriate for children yet still shown during family hour series, The Love Boat. Yes, indeed. Uh, in which beloved stars from sitcoms became Randy passengers on The Hookup Princess. <laughs> that's my tagline for the I don't think, boat. I don't think that was the name of the boat, but that's, uh, I think that's pretty yeah, accurate. Yeah. 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 And I'll be, we'll be asking kind of the evergreen, evergreen 80s TV question. Why did grownups ever let us watch this thing? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No 80s television is appropriate for children. And we yeah. all watched it together. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so please check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Um, please leave us comments and questions. Yeah. And uh, until next time. Until next time. Uh, and I'll just say, yippee kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> of course you will. Uh, well, that's a wrap. I'm going to go watch Miracle on 31st Street. I'm going to go watch a real Christmas movie, uh, All That Heaven Allows by Douglas Sirk. Oh. Yeah. That's a deep dive. I know. I know. I wasn't expecting that. It's harsh. It's oh, harsh. I was, I was expecting I just, Elf. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't really like Elf. So. <gasps> no. I know. I know. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. All right. All right.